Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we are coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL. The website for WFYL, by the way, is 1180WFYL.com. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And my wonderful collaborator on this fine Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our Constitutional Instructor. And we're going through what we're calling a thought experiment looking at the problems that we see with our current constitution, particularly the way it's being uh, interpreted, misinterpreted, applied, misapplied, all, all those, and saying there's some problems that could be corrected, but probably not by an amendment process, which uh, is going to be very difficult to accomplish. But if we were in this thought experiment to propose a brand new constitution, uh, that would incorporate the best and avoid the worst and put checks in place that would prevent the kind of tyranny that we see uh, having uh, de- evolved and developed out of Washington, D.C., what might that look like? And, and uh, today we're going to be looking at um, a very important aspect, and that is the judicial branch. And the judicial branch, typically we think of that as where you know justice is going to be rendered. We go back to the biblical standard where the scripture says, let justice roll down as waters and and righteousness as a mighty stream. There is a standard of justice, which is really uh, the place we need to start with, because people today talk about social justice. And usually what they mean by that is that um, uh, if you have more than somebody else, then then the government's going to steal what you have and give it to the person who has less than you do. Uh, And by the way, that just doesn't include the people inside the boundaries of our country now. That includes anybody in the world. And we know most of the people around the world have far less than we do. So social justice then means we're going to be robbed blind of everything we have. And it's going to be distributed to the people who want to come here from every corner of the world. Well, that's not the justice system that was supposed to be operating according to our Constitution and according to the founders' belief system that we are each created in the image of God. And as creatures in the image of God, we have God-given rights. One of those rights, by the way, is your right to property and to keep your property. If you have uh, justly and righteously obtained that property, you didn't obtain it by stealing. But if you justly and righteously obtained that property, you get to keep that property and no one is allowed to violate your property rights with impunity. They will be punished. Justice will be done. And complete justice, of course, means that you would have restitution made to you when your property is stolen from you. So, for example, if somebody steals your car, it's not just they've stolen your car, they've stolen your means of transportation. So you can't get to the work and you can't get to the uh, the store and you can't get to the doctor. All, your life has enormous problems now and it's going to be very expensive. Even if you get the car back, even if the car is intact and they only put a few miles on it, so there's you know minimum amount of wear and tear, even if that's the case, Your life has been shaken and disrupted in ways that you ought to be compensated for to be made whole. That's what it means, equal justice under the law. And equal justice under the law has to refer to a standard of law, which our founders clearly refer to as the laws of nature and nature's God, by which, of course, they were referring to the Bible as the standard of God's law that's given to humankind and that that's the standard they were seeking to find uh, fulfilled by the judicial branch. Well, when we look at the judicial branch today, you say, whoa, justice under the law? Uh, Department of Justice? Is that what they call that thing? Well, 
Yes, uh, we obviously are very, very far from the standards of our founders. And the question is, how can we restore that? How can we create a system that will not allow uh, the Department of Justice, uh, the Attorney General, or the uh, judicial system as a whole to go so far off track as it has gone uh, in our day? So, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts here on, on this? We'll actually be talking about Articles 6 and 7 under a new constitution, separating out the Office of Attorney General from um, both the executive and the judicial branch. And so let's start with Article 6, the Office of the Attorney General. The Office of the Attorney General of the United States describes the origination of that office during the administration of George Washington. The Department of Justice traces its beginnings to the first Congress meeting in New York in 1789, at which time the Congress devoted itself to creating the infrastructure for operating the federal government. After meeting for several months, the legislators passed a bill known as the Judiciary Act that provided for the organization and administration of the judicial branch of the new government, and including in that act was a provision for appointment of, and this is in quotes, a meek person learned in the law act as attorney general for the United States. Unlike the functions of the Army and Navy, which are specifically mentioned in the Constitution, the Office of the Attorney General of the United States is not a constitutionally specified office. As a matter of mere statutory action, any Congress could eliminate it, although that is unlikely as a result of historical precedent. A new Constitution would specify the office, but demonstrate a more thorough consideration of the functions performed by this law and where it ought to be positioned organizationally. At the lowest level of the system of justice in the United States, the courtroom, there are four distinct entities involved. One, prosecutor. Two, an attorney for the defense. Three, a jury. And four, a judge to explain the law and make judgments concerning due process as a law. And yet at the highest level, this independence has been lost with presidents selecting their attorney generals and nominating federal judges. All of this occurs with the advice and consent of the Senate. So dominance of the Senate and the presidency become the ultimate goal of politicians. If this arrangement had any opportunity for success, that was lost with the passage of the 17th Amendment in 1913, which bypassed the states and their representatives and their uh, representation in the upper house of Congress. Senators can hardly be called true representatives of the people with six-year terms of office and costly political campaigns that only special interests can effectively fund. Historically, it can be demonstrated that when the prosecutorial function is controlled by the executive branch, tyranny arises. Perhaps the most notorious example was the Moscow show trials promoted by Joseph Stalin. Wikipedia describes them in this way. The Moscow trials were a series of show trials held by the Soviet Union between 1936 and 1938 at the instigation of Joseph Stalin. They were nominally directed against Trotskyites and members of right opposition of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Although stated in different ways and attributed to both Soviet jurist Andrei Rushinsky and Stalin's head of the secret police, Lavrenti Maria, this quotation expresses the attitude of all tyrants concerning the system of justice. Show me the man and I'll show you the crime. The Holocaust Encyclopedia describes a similar pattern of charity in Nazi Germany. Dissatisfied with the not guilty verdicts rendered by the Supreme Court in the Reichstag, uh, Reichstag, Reichstag fire trial. Hitler ordered the creation of the People's Court. 
in Berlin in 1934 to try treason and other important political cases. Under Roland Freisler, the People's Court became part of the Nazi system of terror, condemning tens of thousands of people as folk vermin and thousands more to death for folk treason. The trial and sentencing of those accused of complicity in the July plot, the attempt to kill Hitler in July 1944, was especially unjust. In recent years, some Americans have complained of the weaponization of the Department of Justice. The closeness of the executive and prosecutorial functions has played a role. In addition, there is the twofold problem of a mountain of unconstitutional statutory law that can be employed against the individual and power granted to the prosecutor to determine which cases to pursue and which to dismiss. This invites a two-level system of justice that favors the politically connected and tyrannizes those outside of the circle of political favor. There is no perfect solution to this challenge, but by following certain principles, the potential for corruption can be minimized. Perhaps the most important principle is the recognition that the federal government is a formation of sovereign Republican states under a system of limited, enumerated powers of a federation. The federal government cannot be given the power to determine what laws are to be created, how those laws are to be executed, and who will be prosecuted. That is the role of their constitutions when they are appropriately ratified by the people. Constitutions are social contracts among the parties, the sovereign states. Federal governments are the creation of those state-executed contracts. Federal governments cannot be considered as equal partners to those entities that created them. And they certainly can't be considered the senior partners to junior partner states, which is the way the federal government operates today. It is logical, then, that the prosecutorial function should not be appointed as a department within the executive branch. Only five states appoint their attorneys general in this matter, nor should it be assigned to the judicial branch in violation of the principles of independence that govern the courtroom. It must be constituted as a separate branch with its own powers and limitations. And if it is to be independent of uh, the other functions, the attorney general and subordinates must be selected by the Council of States. For traditionalists, the creation of a fourth branch of the federal government seems to be heresy. But the current system already has four or five branches. Certainly, the Federal Reserve System, for which there is no constitutional basis, operates as a branch of government. Many would claim that bureaucracy operates as its own branch of government under the ostensible control of the executive branch and supposedly only making rules that are obviously consistent with the laws passed by Congress. Of course, that is not true. A new constitution would eliminate the Federal Reserve System and reduce the bureaucracy's size and power dramatically. Thus, under a new constitution, the powers to prosecute or dismiss alleged violations of federal law would be vested in the office of the Attorney General of the United States. But for what term? To be truly independent of the federal system, any term of office divisible by two should be avoided. Federal election cycles for representatives are for two years, and presidential elections occur every four years. That means that the only term possibilities for the office of the Attorney General are three and nine years. A three-year term seems too short, but nine years might be reasonable with the understanding that the Attorney General of the United States would be recallable by the Council of States. The Office of the Attorney General would retain the power to select cases for prosecution, subject to the guideline that the accused in a criminal action has the right to a speedy and public trial. That implies that other cases will be deferred or dismissed altogether, since the Council of States would retain the right to recall attorneys within 
the office of the Attorney General of the United States, corruption should be minimized. Okay, let's talk about Article 7, the judicial branch, and particularly Section 1, <coughs> vesting of judicial powers. Article 3, Section 1 of the current Constitution begins, the judicial power of the United States should be vested in one Supreme Court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The first part remains essentially true under a new constitution, but it is necessary to put it under a microscope to understand what the terms mean. It is true that a single entity, the United States, is referenced in the Constitution of 1787, but that differs from the reference in the Declaration of Independence. Consider this concluding idea in the latter document. The representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. The language of the Declaration of Independence recognizes the states as the sovereign entities using the adjective united to indicate in Congress assembled they were taking a common action and that the Congress was authorized to act on behalf of their agent. The first article of the Treaty of Paris of 1783 acknowledges the sovereignty of the former 13 colonies. His Britannic Majesty acknowledges the said United States, namely New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island and Providence plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia to be free, sovereign, and independent states that he treats with them as such and for himself, his heirs and successors, relinquishes all claims to the government, propriety, and territorial rights of the same and every part thereof. There's no question that the Constitution of 1787 represented an attempt to establish closer collaboration among the 13 states. But no serious student of the Constitution and the Federalist Essays claims that the Constitution was established in the United States describing a national government with the states as its subdivisions. Neither does Article 3 of the current Constitution grant the Supreme Court of the United States the power to declare legislation legitimately passed by Congress to be either constitutional or constitutional or unconstitutional. The issue of the Supreme Court of the United States determining constitutionality arose in Marbury versus Madison. In that case, Chief Justice John Marshall issued an opinion that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. That is a reasonable position in interpreting statutory law, but Jeffersonian Republic, Republicans responded that the people not the courts, were the judges of the acts of Congress. Actually, both parties were wrong. What Republicans missed was that the only time that people judge constitutional law is during ratification or amendment of constitutions. That has not been a popular exercise. It is the state representatives of the people who determine the outcome of the ratification process for the Constitution of 1787. But Marshall's thinking was flawed as well in that he assumed that political appointees of the president, who had assumed their judicial roles as a matter of advice and consent of the Senate, serving lifetime terms with no oversight, were mystically ordained to be the final and infallible judges of the Constitution. Furthermore, Marshall's 
actions dramatically increased the powers of the branch of the judiciary, which he headed. No individual or group should be allowed to increase the powers granted to their own branch of government. If this does not lead to tyranny, it certainly leads to the chaos of competing interests in government. Today, we see the logical outcome of the Marbury versus Madison opinion in the phenomenon of legislating from the bench. The major change in the new constitution is the federal government is constrained to the spirit of the Declaration of Independence, which recognized the concentration of power in a national government as a significant threat to the liberty of the people. The major change in the judicial branch of the federal government is that opinions by the Supreme Court of the United States concerning constitutional constitutionality are no longer final and infallible. All such opinions will be heard on appeal in the Supreme Court of the states, representing more closely the people. Article 3, Section 1 of the current Constitution is modified in Article 7, Section 1 of a new Constitution, consistent with that idea. Returning to the initial thought in Section 1 of the current Constitution, which reads, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as Congress may from time to time ordain and and establish. This sentence is modified to read, and in such inferior courts as the Council of States may from time to time ordain and establish. There should be little need to extend the federal judicial system when the ambiguities in the current Constitution have been removed and erroneous precedence has been purged from the Supreme Court opinions. Section 1 of the current Constitution continues. The judges, both of the Supreme and Inferior Court, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation, which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. This will be modified. The judges, both of the Supreme and Inferior Court, shall hold their offices during their assigned terms, and shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation, which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Good behavior is undefinable, and judges are, in any case, subject to impeachment. The language of Article 1, Section 1 would continue. The Supreme Court of the United States will consist of nine justices serving nine-year terms after which they must step down for a minimum of six years before being eligible for reappointment. The initial Supreme Court of the United States will consist of three justices serving three-year terms, three serving six-year terms, and three serving nine-year terms. The initial justices serving less than nine-year terms will be eligible for reappointment but in no case will the justice be allowed to serve a term beyond nine years. The justices of the Supreme Court of the United States will be selected by the Council of States. The terms would be consistent with those of the Supreme Court of the States. Selection of the justices is consistent with the principle that members of one branch of the federal government should not be selecting members of other branches of the federal government. Let's look at Section 2. The initial idea in Section 2 of the current Constitution is... Judicial, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States and treaties made, or which shall be made under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens or subjects. The following language 
would be eliminated to controversies, controversies to which the United States shall be controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens, or subjects. All of these judicial functions would be reassigned to the Supreme Court of the states to have federal judges issue an opinion in cases involving controversies to which the United States is a party is a conflict of interest. Concerning the other removals of jurisdiction from the current judiciary, all of these are consistent with eliminating the wrongful idea that the states are subordinate to the federal government. Section 2 continues, in all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which the state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction both as to law and fact with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. As described previously, this language would be removed, and those in which a state shall be a party. That jurisdiction would be moved to the Supreme Court of the States. The current Section 2 concludes, The trial of all crimes except in cases of impeachment shall be by jury, and such trials shall be made in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed. But when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress made by law have directed. This language may be retained. Let's look at Section 3. The initial thought in Section 3 is, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act, or confession, confession in open court. This would be modified. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. The period of war commences with a declaration of war or the issuance of letters of mark and reprisal by Congress and concludes with a formal cessation of hostilities issued by Congress. Section 3 concludes with this statement, which may be retained in a new constitution. The Congress shall have power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture, except during the life of the person attainted. Thank you, Phil. It's uh, fascinating to look at these details as as we pick through what works or what doesn't work in uh, in our judicial branch, as well as in the Department of Justice and the Attorney General. Uh, by the way, I wanted to, to help people understand that in the Declaration of Independence, we know that the word united in the phrase United States, that word united actually is an adjective. It's not part of the title, the United States. And we know it's an adjective because it's in the lower case and states is in the uppercase, the first letter of the word states. So clearly they were not describing something they called the United States. They were saying these states are united. And, uh, you know, the emphasis being there on the adjective rather than a, a new title. So I just thought it would be important to share that. Uh, and people ought to take a look at the actual copy of the Declaration of Independence to see that that is the case. The word united is in the lowercase uh, in the Declaration of Independence. I also appreciate you bringing up the 17th Amendment again. And uh, again, it may slip by some of our, our listeners the importance of the change that took place with 
that 17th Amendment. Of course, there's a question about its legal ratification. Bill Benson has done extensive work going to each of the state uh, capital archives, the archives for their state, to research what did their state do when the 17th Amendment was sent to them for ratification. And he argues uh, uh, in in a book that uh, has been uh, banned by the federal government, quite obviously reasons why, but his, his argument is no, the 17th Amendment was not properly ratified. There was not enough actual states who did uh, uh, the proper process of ratification of the 17th Amendment, things like they may have taken the 17th Amendment, they wanted to change a word or two words, and and they sent it back to Congress and said, hey, make these changes and then we'll be glad to ratify it. That's not considered ratifying the 17th Amendment. They're proposing changes to it before. Uh, and so things like that took place uh, and the 17th Amendment, therefore, was not legally constitutionally ratified. But the change that took place with the 17th Amendment is prior to that point in time, the state legislatures had a very strong control over their two senators. In a sense, those two senators represented the state legislature at the federal level which means anything that those state legislatures either wanted or did not want to happen at the federal level, uh, those, uh, those senators were being given instructions how to vote. They were basically proxies for uh, the state legislature. And if they voted contrary to the, their instructions from the legislatures of the state that they represented, those uh, legislators could remove them at will. That didn't have to wait until their six years uh, term expired and then then replace them. with. They could immediately take them out of office and replace them with someone who would do the bidding of the state legislature. We have many examples of this. In fact, one of the uh, reasons that we were told that, oh, we have to have this 17th Amendment is that some states had vacancies. That is, instead of having two senators, they only had one senator because the state legislature either hadn't got around to or hadn't come to a conclusion about who would be the best replacement for that vacancy. And therefore, there was some states only represented by one rather than two. But that's not a problem. That was a decision that was being done by the state legislators uh, until they got their uh, uh, decision together as to who was going to fill that role. But once the 17th Amendment quote unquote, we have to put in air quotes, was ratified. It really wasn't ratified. But once it was considered ratified, then popular election meant that the entire state would be voting on who their senators were uh, and and uh, separated by three-year terms, uh, you know, six years, and then uh, each, each of those senators standing for re-election every six years, but staggered such that it would be every three years, the uh, state citizens would be voting for a senator. Problem being, as you point out rightly, Phil, that uh, those are expensive contests, multi-million dollar contests uh, for that office of Senate. And if you don't have a pile of money behind you, your likelihood of uh, getting elected is like a snowball down in Haiti. So uh, there's no way that the average person can successfully run for a, a senator representing their state. Which means the people with big money, the deep pockets, the uh, yeah, the special interests in Washington D.C. get to determine who becomes the senator for each state. So actually, the entire process is not just given to the people now; it is given to special interests to control who becomes senators and how those senators are going to uh, react and vote, because they know their reelection depends upon the flow of enormous amounts of money 
into their campaign coffers. And so they're not really serving the people as we were told. Oh, yeah, the 17th Amendment is going to be wonderful. The senators will be representing the people. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that what the House of Representatives already does? Yes, it represents the people and, and not as the whole state, but as a congressional district within that state. So you're right to say that 17th Amendment made a disastrous change uh, in, in our country. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole idea of being charged with statutory, with an enormous pile of statutory law, much of which is unconstitutional, much of which is a violation of the limits our founders set upon uh, the federal government. By the way, the federal government, when you read the Constitution carefully, you'll discover there's really only three crimes that the federal judicial system should be prosecuting, because there's only really three federal crimes. All the other crimes, they're crimes that the states deal with. The state a judicial system prosecutes. And those three federal crimes are piracy, because obviously if you're committing a crime out in the ocean, how can one state say, well, hey, that's uh, that that's our case. We're going to take that to our court. Or another state would say, no, 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 they're, they're closer to our land. No, if it's out to sea, if it's piracy, then obviously that, that would be a proper place for uh, the federal judiciary to deal with. So uh, piracy, treason, treason against the United States. That's the whole of it. Uh, and then uh, counterfeiting, that is uh, creating money that uh, is actually uh, not approved uh, money by standard or uh, uh, invented out of some thin air kind of uh, thing, which, by the way, is exactly what the Federal Reserve does every single day. They're counterfeiting when they create money out of thin air, whether that's the paper that we hold in our wallet or whether it's the digits in our bank account. The Federal Reserve is, is essentially a counterfeiting agency uh, that the federal government cooperates with in order to enrich themselves and to enrich those owners of the Federal Reserve. Um, so when we look at this excuse for saying that the federal Supreme Court gets to be the final say as to what the Constitution means, you're absolutely right. It was the case Marbury v. Madison that seemed to bring the shift in thinking. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, you know he was overstepping, uh, as Chief Justice was overstepping by a large degree, his authority. Of course, we uh, know that the Supreme Court issues their opinions about cases. And by the way, you look at every Supreme Court uh, case uh, that they, uh, when they write their, uh, their determination, it's called an opinion. It is the opinion of the Supreme Court. It's not the law of the land, it's simply an opinion. But yes, the legislature, they have their opinion about what is constitutional. The executive branch, they have their opinion about what's constitutional. And the, the Supreme Court, just because that word supreme is attached to them, does not mean that their opinion trumps everyone else's opinion. And I agree with um, what uh, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Virginia Resolves and the Kentucky Resolves, where states said to the federal government, this law that you have passed, or this group of laws known as the Alien and Sedition Acts, these are not constitutional, and therefore we deem them not to be law, and they are not law in our state. So don't come to Kentucky to try to enforce the Alien and Sedition Acts. Don't come to Virginia because any of your agents who come into our state to enforce what we have declared to be not law, they will be arrested. Uh, they will be uh, criminalized. And, and actually, there are other states that have done similar things in our modern times, not just all the way back there uh, at the turn of the 19th century, but uh, the state of Wyoming, for example, has a law in the books talking about the B-A-T-F-E, by the way, a completely unconstitutional agency that should be abolished 
because there's no grounds in the Constitution for them to have any jurisdiction over alcohol. After all, the 18th Amendment was abolished. Therefore, they have no nothing over alcohol, nor, nor tobacco, nor firearms. It's not in their jurisdiction at all. So the state of Wyoming said anybody that comes into uh, this, their state uh, attempting to enforce some federal firearms law will be arrested. That's right. And, and put in prison because they are actually violating the separation of powers between the state government and the powers that the state government holds and that of the federal government. We've only given the federal government limited, enumerated uh, jurisdiction. Their powers are not unlimited, but they have, you know, as you, as you rightly said, they've drawn the boundaries of their own powers, claiming that, uh, the, the, you know, the supreme law of the land is them. Essentially, the supreme law of the land is no longer the Constitution, but it's them. And whatever they say their powers are, that that is what their powers are. And that's, that's by definition, clearly uh, a tyrant. So I like this idea that you're proposing in this, that we create a uh, Supreme Court of the states as well as the U.S. Supreme Court. And that the Supreme Court of the state is going to deal with a, a number of cases, a number of issues that should never be in the hands of of the Supreme Court of the United States. And I think it's important to uh, delineate where those jurisdictional boundaries are and uh, what what belongs to the one uh, judicial branch under the federal government and what belongs uh, to the branch really under uh, the jurisdiction of the Council of the States. And as we look at the details of what is laid out here, this Council of the States is one of the biggest changes and I think the most important change is enabling the states to have a very powerful and direct check upon every aspect, all three branches of uh, the federal government, so that the, we don't have a federal government run amok and, and run out of control and, and uh, tyrannizing all of us, as, as we have seen so clearly, especially in the past uh, three years. Your thoughts, Phil? Okay, let's. Uh, I, I'd like to add one thing that I, I did not address at all. And that is the uh, multiple intelligence organizations ah, or, in, uh, or investigatory organizations, if you will. To me, it's the same thing. Okay. These would be a part of the prosecutorial function in the office of the attorney general. Now, my, I favor combining them. Don't get upset about that. There's a reason for that. Uh, one of the problems that you have today is this um, finger pointing between these organizations you can never quite fix the responsibility. So, yep, we'd have a single organization, call it the Federal Bureau of Investigation, if you, and it would have, as long as um, the issue was constitutional, it would have the jurisdiction to investigate, and of course, it would recommend prosecution, and the prosecutor would be within the Department of Justice. But the important thing there is to remember that, that that office would be drastically reduced. Think of all of the unconstitutional things that all of these intelligence agencies are involved with. Under new constitution, that would be gone. How, how many individuals we'd be able to eliminate and allow them to go out into the economy and get real jobs. I drive down a, a road, Route 32, here in Maryland on the morning commute quite regularly, and I find I'm, I'm stuck in traffic on that commute because of the enormous volume of people going into that spy agency called the NSA. And we know, as, as Edward Snowden revealed, uh, blew the whistle on them, they are illegally spying on all Americans, all of our email and 
our phone conversations and obviously this this uh, radio broadcast we're doing right now they're spying on us illegally because the constitution clearly states currently uh, the fourth amendment that unless there is a crime committed and they have a process by which they say there's some connection between this crime and your person your papers your your information that unless there's that unless there's an actual warrant connecting you to a crime they have no ability constitutionally to spy on you. And yet they do it. And they're continuing to do it. I mean, Edward Snowden blew the whistle on them. And I understand nothing has changed. In fact, they've grown in size. There's more employees, more money, et cetera. Uh, that, that's a, one of those agencies that, you know, their entire function, it appears to me, is, is serving an unconstitutional purpose. And by the way, all these supposed expert uh, spying agencies, these intelligence agencies did nothing to protect us from 9-11. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. These are supposed to be there. They've got their pulse on everything going on, including these guys who are who are taking flight training down in Florida and so forth. And no, nah, they never put it together. These people are incompetent, it appears to me. And uh, you, you're right. They need to be abolished and reduced to a very small agency, clearly following the Constitution uh, and, and not allowed to go out and basically do whatever they please uh, at our, our expense, by the way. Uh, spending billions and billions and billions of our taxpayer dollars to destroy our constitutional republic and and uh, you know run roughshod over our god-given rights so they're doing the exact opposite of what our government was uh, created to do uh and so that, that you're absolutely right those intel agencies need to be reined in perhaps put in one agency so there's not all these competing things and uh uh, lack of communication between one uh, what one agency is doing and another agency is doing. Well, their supposed uh, reason for existence is the assumption, show me the man, I'll show you the crime. Okay. Well, if you have a limited number of uh, uh, laws because you're living in a, a uh, constitutional republic, then it doesn't really get to be very difficult. But here's where the, the mountain of statutory un constitutional statutory uh, law becomes so formidable and so tyrannized because basically there's got to be something in there that holds each of us criminal. And so uh, Berean and Vashinsky, whoever said it first, was absolutely correct. All you have to do is to go into that mountain of law, particularly if you have an army of of lawyers, you say, get me the, the law I've got the man. All you have to do is to identify the person, put those lawyers to work. They'll find something in statutory law to put you in jail. Yes. In fact, there is a, a, a an attorney who's not at all on the right side of things. He's a left-leaning attorney. I think he's Goldberg, I believe. Anyway, he, he's written the book, Three Felonies a Day. He contends, from his knowledge of federal law and federal statutes, that the average American, the average American commits three federal felonies per day. In other words, we're all, we've all been made criminals by the statutes that they've passed. And we're all then potentially going to be dragged before some tribunal and, and thrown in the Hooskow for forever. You know, we'll be treated like the J6 uh, prisoners. Not that we've actually committed some unconstitutional breach of law, but rather the legal system and the statutory system have become so out of control that everything you do winds up being criminal. And it's it's a little bit worse than just the statutory law, but we in uh, our, the, the vast unwisdom of those who run the, the executive branch 
have allowed executive branches, uh, agencies to create law. And they call it administrative law. It might say, well, administrative law, that can't harm me at all. Oh, oh, yes, it can. For example, all the IRS code is under that administrative law. Congress never passed one line of the IRS code. And yet, if you violate the IRS code, you could wind up in jail. They could take your house. They could take your car. They could take everything from you. But there's been no uh, vote on any of that code. It's been simply administrative law that's created. So we have a tyrannical system that's uh, hidden from we the people and is not under the control of we the people because the bureaucrats who are completely unelected, therefore unaccountable to we the people, are creating this administrative law, uh, of which we're probably all violating a bunch of those every day, unknown to us that uh, that there is some law in the books about, I don't know, uh, cutting the, uh, the tag off your pillow uh, before you got it home or, or some crazy law like that. Who, who knows all the, the craziness that they have done? Well, there's another area, and that is treaties. We'll be talking about treaties next week and where they fit into the total picture and the structure of law. But right now, you know, it's unclear. If you were to look at the wording of the Constitution, it is unclear where treaties fit in. And for example, we have very strict, we have an amendment. We, we confirm a right to the, uh, the right to bear arms. Uh, but however, suppose that uh, an administration goes out and negotiates uh, to be a part of an international treaty to ban whatever kinds of weapons or all of them for all I know. But <clears throat> so they, they do this. And that's kind of like, a, I think you pointed out in the, the past, past year, uh, David, that uh, yes, the, uh, the Congress could pass a law defying the law of gravity and nullifying it. Try jumping off the, uh, the Empire State Building and see what the impact is. You know, this is crazy. And so basically, um, that is a whole area that has to be cleaned up. And I think, you know, just to kind of summarize, as you look at this whole area of the, uh, the Constitution under the judicial branch, and under the, the office of the, the attorney general. Look at this in terms of, okay, suppose we're trying to amend the Constitution to get rid of all of this stuff. How, how much amendment code would you have to write, and would it be, would it be recognizable? You know, which has preference over what and so forth? We could be, we could be interpreting this uh, until the cows come home. And it seems to me that, that you know, one of the advantages of Looking at this as a thought experiment is that we can clean up all of that. We can start with a clean base. Now, okay, if somebody figures out a way to, to appropriately amend the current constitution to get these goals uh, achieved, that's fine. That is you know, one of the, the uh, possibilities that is offered by a thought experiment. But on the other hand, it is important to look at this free of any of the constraints of the, to determine what is best for this nation. Amen. And I, I don't attempt to be an, a, a prognosticator or, or be able to foretell what the future holds, but I do know that we are facing some irreversible and perhaps irretrievable uh, disasters coming financially to our country. Because it's not just the $32 trillion that uh, we're in debt, uh, but a hundred and some trillion dollars once you take in all the unfunded uh, things like Social Security and Medicaid and so on. I mean, it's just, it's an enormous debt that ultimately cannot be paid unless you make everyone a debt slave forever in perpetuity, all the children and the grandchildren, great. And so, so we're facing that. And 
not only facing that, but then we're facing what is clearly happening worldwide, that the uh, reserve currency, that the dollar has held that position uh, since Bretton Woods, you might argue, or since the, the deal with OPEC back in the 1970s. So the, the world reserve currency has meant that the all the nations of the world have wanted to obtain dollars for the simple reason that that was the only way they could purchase oil. Well, that petrodollar deal is now broken. Those nations do not need to obtain the dollar. And uh, therefore, there's all these dollars out there in the world that are probably coming home to roost because those nations want to get rid of them. And that means the inflation we're seeing now, we're being lied to, it's probably more like 15% or north of 15%. That inflation likely will turn into hyperinflation where you're seeing a hundred, several hundred, maybe even a thousand percent inflation per year. And that kind of chaos and collapse, I believe, will bring our, our governments, federal, state, and local governments to uh, the brink of collapse. Now, that's the bad news. But the good news is if we have an understanding of what will be a good and useful government at the federal level, at the state level, and, and at the county level, if we understand these principles, we will be able to rebuild from the ash heap that uh, our current trajectory is heading towards. Again, I'm, I'm not being a prognosticator saying I know this is going to happen, but the, the pieces look like they're heading in this direction just look at the history of Argentina and uh, what uh, their financial collapse looked like in hyperinflation. Or look at uh, Weimar Germany as another example. And there, and then there are other examples that uh, uh, inform us that the ultimate end of fiat currency, when the government just begins printing more and more and more and more, uh, that the, the, those pieces of paper become le worth less and less and less each day, uh, that brings a disaster and a catastrophe where uh, basically the government no longer can function. So I don't know if you, you have any thoughts on that, particularly from your economic uh, expertise. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, this, is, this is a subject that could take us an hour uh, by itself, at least. Um, and I think it's just one of many. I mean, we're, we're talking about multiple major structural problems here that have to be addressed simultaneously. Uh, one, which really got uh, its its birth in 2020 was this issue that the federal government and particularly the executive branch had the power to declare an emergency uh, with the emergence of a new pathogen. And that was COVID-19. Now, my understanding is the new pathogens arrive on the scene about once every five years. Uh, the nation was put into a virtual lockdown. Uh, most uh, civil liberties were denied. And uh, they were denied for a period of at least two years. We still are not totally free of it. But you know something has to be done by that, uh, done to, to counter that simultaneously. Uh, there are no emergency powers in the Constitution of the United States intentionally. We did not want to go down the same path that, that Germany went down with its Weimar Constitution that uh, gave Hitler its rise to power. Now, I've got some good news here. Um, a website called Going Postal has published part one of violations of the Nuremberg Code. We talked about this last week. Violations of the Nuremberg Code in COVID-19 control program. Uh, Nicholas Bednarski, MD, is the author of it, and I am identified as a collaborator. My, my role in, in this was knowledge of that period and uh, um, knowledge of constitutional law. Uh, Pat Barron, an economist and consultant to the banking industry, 
has done a marvelous introduction and executive summary. This is part one of a series, okay? And Dr. Bednarski's comments are limited to item one of, of the Nuremberg Code, addressing the need for informed consent only, okay? Uh, there's more coming down the road. His conclusion is that the criteria for meeting item one definitely was not met in subsequent parts, which I have seen. He demonstrates that all 10 of the code's items were not met. Wow. It is mm. reasonable to say, all 10, yeah, it is reasonable to say that the COVID-19 control program was an obvious crime against humanity. Okay. If anybody is interested in this, uh, do a search on going postal, and that's going dash postal slash 2023 slash 11 slash violations. And <clears throat> much of the series complements Senator Rand Paul's book, which I also highly recommend, Deception, the Great COVID Cover-Up. Senator Paul also covers um, Anthony Fauci's attempt to um, at NIH funding of the gain of function to cover that cover up that whole story and the relationship with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the other thing that that uh, uh, Senator Paul addresses is the unlikely possibility that COVID nineteen occurred naturally in the animal kingdom and leaked to humans. Wow! Oh yes. So going postal and and just do do the search on. Uh... Uh, in in that uh, area of uh, Nuremberg Code, eleven violations. Well, uh, I think probably the best cleanest would be going dash postal slash two thousand twenty three slash eleven slash violations, and you'll pick it up that way. And uh, I, I don't know if the point is going to be made in this article or subsequent articles that really we don't see anybody being held accountable for these crimes that they've committed. I mean, there's they've gotten away with it. You know, Fauci's still a free man. Uh, he's not behind bars. In fact, he's benefited by the hundreds of millions of dollars, some evidence says, in terms of the payoffs that he's received from drug companies and from patents and all. I mean, he's benefited enormously. Uh, hmm, that's a problem there. Many people died because they followed Fauci's uh, orders or his uh, you know, strong encouragements or yeah, so the lies and the deception told, it cost people their lives. So perhaps what we need is another Nuremberg, we might call it Nuremberg 2.0, a trial that would hold all of these criminals accountable for the evil that they did uh, during COVID and, and uh, well, basically the last two to three years. Uh, and and that the, some of those may have done what they did in ignorance. But again, you know, a, a proper trial could determine whether uh, they were knowingly committing this. And I think you're, you're sharing that the evidence that uh, Rand Paul's book shows that, no, 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 Fauci was knowingly committing these crimes, knowingly deceiving the populace, uh, you know, flip-flopping from one uh, day saying, oh, nobody needs to wear a mask at all. In fact, don't don't go out and buy a mask because if you do, you're going to reduce the amount of uh, personal protective equipment that's available for the medical uh, people. So don't go, don't go do that. And a few days later say, no, you need to wear, everybody needs to wear a mask. And a while later, everybody needs to wear a double mask. You know, on and on the insanity goes, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like medical advice at all. In fact, I think it had more, far more to do with scaring the people to death to drive them all towards getting their goal. And that was a universal um, mRNA altering 
genetically altering shot that they call a vaccine, which is a, a faulty term for, for what that shot was. Well, Dr. Bednarski and I were very disciplined in remaining within the boundaries of the uh, uh, Nuremberg Code. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't go into all the other areas that you mentioned. Senator Paul does. Mm-hmm. He gets into excruciating detail <laughs> all of the violations. And that's why I, I recommend everybody should get a copy of Senator Paul's book, Deception, the Great COVID Cover-Up. The two pieces fit together, okay? but what we dealt with is uh, the ethics. Now, by the way, there's, there's some irony in this. Um, the Nazi doctors, uh, I think there were 16 of them tried, seven were executed. Hmm. There was no law in place, okay? Now, if you'd think in 76 years, our, our legislators would be able to fill that need. Mm-hmm. You've often said uh, the primary role, the only role, government is to protect the the uh uh the people god-given rights yes right this hasn't been done mm-hmm. and the most basic right is the right to life <laughs> and uh if the government uh says you must do x y and z and it deprives you of your life well there needs to be an investigation did they know what they were doing i have uh, members of my congregation who were fired from their job because they would not take the shot uh, they said it's against my religious belief, and I actually wrote a number of uh, religious exemption letters and so forth, and these were denied. They said, oh, no, no, you don't have a religious exemption. You're fired because you won't get this shot. And so depriving people of their livelihood because they won't get an experimental injection that nobody knows exactly what it's going to do, well, <laughs> this is criminal. And clearly, we had uh, many, many people who were involved in this criminal conspiracy. And so, you know, we, I've heard others calling for a Nuremberg 2.0, and I would agree with that, that there needs to be uh, justice done here to the injuries that have been caused by, uh, by how they have stepped outside the boundaries of our constitutional legal system. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the airways of WFIL, and uh, we are encouraging you to check out the resources that are available at our website. Our podcast, that is the past five years or more of our shows, are all archived there. Go to 1180W, uh, excuse me, yeah, 1180WFIL.com, click on podcast, and we're right down there at the bottom of the list, We the People, and uh, we've got a, a, a new organization of that website that's going to help you easily access the materials that we have been developing uh, through these radio shows. Send your uh, send your web browser there and and uh, invite your friends to join you on Friday mornings at 8 a.m. Where we come to you, we the people, the Constitution matters because if we don't know these standards and we don't force our government to abide by these limitations, we will lose our liberty. <laughs>